chapter thirty seven and thirty eight of omu this librivox recording is in the public domain omu a narrative of adventures in the south seas by herman melville chapter thirty seven the french priests pay their respects a day or two after the events just related we were lounging in the calabooza baritani when we were honored by a visit from three of the french priests and as about the only notice ever taken of us by the English missionaries was their leaving their cards for us in the shape of a package of tracts, we could not help thinking that the Frenchmen, in making a personal call, were at least much better bred. By this time they had settled themselves down quite near our habitation. A pleasant little stroll down the broom road, and a rustic cross peeped through the trees, and soon you came to as charming a place as one would wish to see. A soft knoll planted with old breadfruit trees, in front a savanna sloping to a grove of palms, and between these glimpses of blue sunny waves. On the summit of the knoll was a rude chapel of bamboos, quite small and surmounted by the cross. Between the canes, at nightfall, the natives stole peeps at a small portable altar, a crucifix to correspond, and gilded candlesticks and censers. Their curiosity carried them no farther. Nothing could induce them to worship there. Such queer ideas as they entertained of the hated strangers. Masses and chants were nothing more than evil spells. As for the priests themselves, they were no better than diabolical sorcerers, like those who in old times terrified their fathers. Close by the chapel was a range of native houses, rented from a chief and handsomely furnished. Here lived the priests, and very comfortably, too. They looked sanctimonious enough abroad, but that went for nothing, since at home in their retreat they were a club of friar tucks, holding priestly wassail over many a good cup of red brandy and rising late in the morning. Pity it was they couldn't marry, Pity for the ladies of the island, I mean, and the cause of morality. For what business had the ecclesiastical old bachelors with such a set of trim little native handmaidens? These damsels were their first converts, and devoted ones they were. The priests, as I said before, were accounted necromancers. The appearance of two of our three visitors might have justified the conceit. They were little, dried-up Frenchmen, in long, straight gowns of black cloth, and unsightly three-cornered hats, so preposterously big that, in putting them on, the reverend fathers seemed extinguishing themselves. Their companion was dressed differently. He wore a sort of yellow flannel morning gown and a broad-rimmed manila hat. Large and portly, he was also hale and fifty, with a complexion like an autumnal leaf, handsome blue eyes, fine teeth, and a racy Milesian brogue. In short, he was an Irishman, Father Murphy by name, and as such, pretty well known and very thoroughly disliked throughout all the Protestant missionary settlements in Polynesia. In early youth, he had been sent to a religious seminary in France, and, taking orders there, had but once or twice afterward revisited his native land. Father Murphy marched up to us briskly, and the first words he uttered were to ask whether there were any of his countrymen among us. There were two of them, one a lad of sixteen, 
a bright curly-headed rascal, and, being a young Irishman, of course his name was Pat. The other was an ugly and rather melancholy-looking scamp, one McGee, whose prospects in life had been blasted by a premature transportation to Sydney. This was the report, at least, though it might have been scandal. In most of my shipmates were some redeeming qualities, but about McGee there was nothing of the kind, and, forced to consort with him, I could not help regretting, a thousand times, that the gallows had been so tardy. As if impelled against her will to send him into the world, nature had done all she could to ensure his being taken for what he was. About the eyes there was no mistaking him. With a villainous cast in one, they seemed suspicious of each other. Glancing away from him at once, the bluff priest rested his gaze on the good-humored face of Pat, who, with a pleasant roguishness, was twigging the enormous hats, or high-tea belteasers, as island beavers were called by sailors, from under which, like a couple of snails, peeped the two little Frenchmen. Pat and the priest were both from the same town in Meath, and, when this was found out, there was no end to the questions of the latter. To him, Pat seemed a letter from home, and said a hundred times as much. After a long talk between these two, and a little broken English from the Frenchmen, our visitors took leave, but Father Murphy had hardly gone a dozen rods, when back he came, inquiring whether we were in want of anything. Yes, cried one, something to eat. Upon this, he promised to send us some fresh wheat bread of his own baking, a great luxury in Tahiti. We all felicitated Pat upon picking up such a friend, and told him his fortune was made. The next morning, a French servant of the priest's made his appearance with a small bundle of clothing for our young Hibernian, and the promised bread for the party. Pat, being out at the knees and elbows, and like the rest of us, not full inside, the present was acceptable all round. In the afternoon, Father Murphy himself came along, and, in addition to his previous gifts, gave Pat a good deal of advice, said he was sorry to see him in limbo, and that he would have a talk with the consul about having him set free. We saw nothing more of him for two or three days, at the end of which time he paid us another call, telling Pat that Wilson was inexorable, having refused to set him at liberty unless to go aboard the ship. This the priest now besought him to do forthwith, and to escape the punishment which, it seems, Wilson had been hinting at to his intercessor. Pat, however, was staunch against entreaties, and, with all the ardor of a sophomorean sailor, protested his intention to hold out to the last. With none of the meekness of a good little boy about him, the blunt youngster stormed away at such a rate that it was hard to pacify him, and the priest said no more. How it came to pass, whether from Murphy's speaking to the consul or otherwise, we could not tell, but the next day Pat was sent for by Wilson, and being escorted to the village by our good old keeper, three days elapsed before he returned. Bent upon reclaiming him, they had taken him on board the ship, feasted him in the cabin, and, finding that of no avail, down they thrust him into the hold in double irons and on bread and water. All would not do, and so he was sent back to the Calabusa. 
boy that he was, they must have counted upon his being more susceptible to discipline than the rest. The interest felt in Pat's welfare by his benevolent countryman was very serviceable to the rest of us, especially as we all turned Catholics and went to Mass every morning, much to Captain Bob's consternation. Upon finding it out, he threatened to keep us in the stocks if we did not desist. He went no farther than this, though, and so, every few days, we strolled down to the priest's residence and had a mouthful to eat and something generous to drink. In particular, Dr. Longghost and myself became huge favorites with Pat's friend, and many a time he regaled us from a quaint-looking traveling case for spirits stowed away in one corner of his dwelling. It held four square flasks, which, somehow or other, always contained just enough to need emptying. In truth, the fine old Irishman was a rosy fellow in canonicals. His countenance and his soul were always in a glow. It may be ungenerous to reveal his failings, but he often talked thick, and sometimes was perceptibly eccentric in his gait. I never drink French brandy, but I pledge Father Murphy. His health again, and many jolly proselytes may he make in Polynesia. Chapter 38 Little Jewel Sails Without Us To make good the hint thrown out by the consul upon the conclusion of the farce of the affidavits, we were again brought before him within the time specified. It was the same thing over again. He got nothing out of us, and we were remanded, our resolute behavior annoying him prodigiously. What we observed led us to form the idea that on first learning the state of affairs on board the Julia, Wilson must have addressed his invalid friend, the captain, something in the following style. Guy, my poor fellow, don't worry yourself now about those rascally sailors of yours. I'll dress them out for you. Just leave it all to me and set your mind at rest. But handcuffs and stocks, big looks, threats, dark hints, and dispositions had all gone for naught. Conscious that, as matters now stood, nothing serious could grow out of what had happened, and never dreaming that our being sent home for trial had ever been really thought of, we thoroughly understood Wilson, and laughed at him accordingly. Since leaving the Julia, we had caught no glimpse of the mate, but we often heard of him. It seemed that he remained on board, keeping house in the cabin for himself and Viner, who, going to see him according to promise, was induced to remain a guest. These two cronies now had fine times, tapping the captain's quarter-casks, playing cards on the transom, and giving balls of an evening to the ladies ashore. In short, they cut up so many queer capers that the missionaries complained of them to the consul, and German received a sharp reprimand. This so affected him that he drank still more freely than before, and one afternoon, when mellow as a grape, he took umbrage at a canoe full of natives, who on being hailed from the deck to come aboard and show their papers, got frightened and paddled for the shore. Lowering a boat instantly, he equipped Waimantu and the Dane with a cutlass apiece, and seizing another himself, off they started in pursuit, the ship's ensign flying in the boat's stern. The alarmed islanders, beaching their canoe, with loud cries fled through the village, the mate after them, slashing his naked weapon to right and left. 
a crowd soon collected, and the Karhauri Tuni, or crazy stranger, was quickly taken before Wilson. Now it so chanced that in a native house hard by, the consul and Captain Guy were having a quiet game at cribbage by themselves, a decanter on the table standing sentry. The obstreperous German was brought in, and finding the two thus pleasantly occupied, it had a soothing effect upon him, and he insisted upon taking a hand at the cards and a drink of the brandy. As the consul was nearly as tipsy as himself, and the captain dared not object for fear of giving offence, at it they went, all three of them, and made a night of it. The mate's delinquencies being summarily passed over, and his captors sent away. An incident worth relating grew out of this freak. There wandered about Papity at this time a shriveled little fright of an English woman, known among sailors as Old Mother Tot. From New Zealand to the Sandwich Islands, she had been all over the South Seas, keeping a rude hut of entertainment for mariners, and supplying them with rum and dice. Upon the missionary islands, of course, such conduct was severely punishable, and at various places Mother Tot's establishment had been shut up, and its proprietor made to quit in the first vessel that could be hired to land her elsewhere. But, with a perseverance invincible, wherever she went, she always started afresh, and so became notorious everywhere. By some wicked spell of hers, a patient, one-eyed little cobbler followed her about, mending shoes for white men, doing the old woman's cooking, and bearing all her abuse without grumbling. Strange to relate, a battered Bible was seldom out of his sight, and whenever he had leisure and his mistress's back was turned, he was forever poring over it. This pious propensity used to enrage the old crone past belief, and oftentimes she boxed his ears with the book and tried to burn it. Mother Tot and her man Josie were, indeed, a curious pair. But to my story. A week or so after our arrival in the harbor, the old lady had once again been hunted down and forced for a time to abandon her nefarious calling. This was brought about chiefly by Wilson, who, for some reason unknown, had contracted the most violent hatred for her, which on her part was more than reciprocated. Well, passing in the evening, where the consul and his party were making merry, she peeped through the bamboos of the house, and straightway resolved to gratify her spite. The night was very dark, and providing herself with a huge ship's lantern, which usually swung in her hut, she waited till they came forth. This happened about midnight, Wilson masking his appearance, supported by two natives, holding him up by his arms. These three went first, and just as they got under a deep shade, a bright light was thrust within an inch of Wilson's nose. The old hag was kneeling before him, holding the lantern with uplifted hands. Ha ha, my fine counsellor, she shrieked. Ye persecute a lone old body like me for selling rum, do ye? And here ye are, carried home drunk. Hoot, ye villain, I scorn ye. And she spat upon him. Terrified at the apparition, the poor natives, errant believers in ghosts, dropped the trembling consul and fled in all directions. After giving full vent to her rage, Mother Tot hobbled away 
and left the three revellers to stagger home the best way they could. The day following our last interview with Wilson, we learned that Captain Guy had gone on board his vessel for the purpose of shipping a new crew. There was a round bounty offered, and a heavy bag of Spanish dollars, with the Julia's articles ready for signing, were laid upon the capstan head. Now there was no lack of idle sailors ashore, mostly beachcombers, who had formed themselves into an organized gang, headed by one Mac, a Scotchman, whom they styled the Commodore. By the laws of the fraternity, no member was allowed to ship on board a vessel, unless granted permission by the rest. In this way the gang controlled the port, all discharged seamen being forced to join them. To Mac and his men, our story was well known. Indeed, they had several times called to see us, and of course, as sailors and congenial spirits, they were hard against Captain Guy. Deeming the matter important, they came in a body to the Calabooza, and wished to know whether, all things considered, we thought it best for any of them to join the Julia. Anxious to pack the ship off as soon as possible, we answered, by all means. Some went so far as to laud the Julia to the skies, as the best and fastest of ships. German, too, as a good fellow and a sailor every inch, came in for his share of praise. And as for the captain, quiet man, he would never trouble any one. In short, every inducement we could think of was presented, and Flash Jack ended by assuring the beachcombers solemnly that now we were all well and hearty, nothing but a regard to principle prevented us from returning on board ourselves. The result was that a new crew was finally obtained, together with a steady New Englander for second mate, and three good whalemen for harpooners. In part, what was wanting for the ship's larder was also supplied, and as far as could be done in a place like Tahiti, the damages the vessel had sustained were repaired. As for the Maori, the authorities refusing to let him be put ashore, he was carried to sea in irons, down in the hold. What eventually became of him we never heard. Ropey, poor, poor Ropey, who a few days previous had fallen sick, was left ashore at the sailor hospital at Taunor, a small place upon the beach between Papati and Matavai. Here, some time after, he breathed his last. No one knew his complaint. He must have died of hard times. Several of us saw him interred in the sand, and I planted a rude post to mark his resting place. The cooper and the rest who had remained aboard from the first, of course, comprised part of the Julia's new crew. To account for the conduct all along of the consul and captain in trying so hard to alter our purpose with respect to the ship, the following statement is all that is requisite. Beside an advance of from fifteen to twenty-five dollars demanded by every sailor shipping at Tahiti, an additional sum for each man so shipped was to be paid into the hands of the government as a charge of the port. Beside this, the men, with here and there an exception, will only ship for one cruise, thus becoming entitled to a discharge before the vessel reaches home, which in time creates the necessity of obtaining other men at a similar cost. Now the Julius Exchequer was at low water mark, or rather it was quite empty, and to meet these expenses a good part of what little oil there was aboard 
had to be sold for a song to a merchant of Papati. It was Sunday in Tahiti, and a glorious morning, when Captain Bob, waddling into the Calabooza, startled us all by announcing, Ah, my boy, shippy you, haree, makey sail. In other words, the Julia was off. The beach was quite near, and in this quarter, altogether uninhabited. So down we ran, and at a cable's length, saw little jewel gliding past, top gallant sails hoisting, and a boy aloft with one leg thrown over the yard, loosing the fore royal. The decks were all life and commotion, the sailors on the forecastle singing, Ho, cheerly men, as they catted the anchor, and the gallant German, bareheaded as his wont, standing up in the bowsprit, and issuing his orders. By the man at the helm stood Captain Guy, very quiet and gentlemanly, and smoking a cigar. Soon the ship drew near the reef, and altering her course, glided out through the break, and went on her way. Thus disappeared little Jewel, about three weeks after entering the harbor, and nothing more have I ever heard of her. End of chapters 37 and 38 Recording by Tricia G.